Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Broken promises on COVID testing, threats to break international law, the government is under increasing pressure over its handling of the coronavirus crisis and the dramatic twist that it has injected into the Brexit talks. We're going to look at why the government's world-beating, its words, coronavirus testing system is running into difficulties and ask what's going wrong and who is to blame. The UK Internal Market Bill, that's the controversial piece of legislation which could, if passed, see the UK break international law, that's making its way through Parliament. We're going to update you on its progress and the rows that are certainly going to come. Joining me in the virtual studio today is the IFG's Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. Jess Sargent's with us. She's a senior researcher on the Brexit team. Hi, Jess. Hello. And I'm delighted to be joined, too, by Anoush Chikalian, the Britain editor at The New Statesman. Hi, Anoush. Hiya. Thank you for joining us on what is a busy day. Let's get going. Testing was meant to be the answer, at least until a vaccine arrives, to getting the country moving again after the lockdown. In the words of the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, just a few months ago, if in doubt, get a test, because that is the most important thing people can do to help control the virus across the country. He now admits that the testing system faces an enormous challenge after a sharp rise in people seeking those tests. So Alex, what is the government blaming for these problems? So they're trying very, very hard not to blame the general public for seeking too many tests. But in the end, they're blaming the general public for seeking too many uh, tests. So they um, uh, are very clear that the uh, sort of testing capacity has held up. And if you look at the statistics, which um, uh, have have come out just in the last day or so, um, uh, the testing capacity is uh, steadily uh, continuing to increase, uh, although there are clearly some problems around the logistics and increasing delays in the results coming out, which does uh, point pretty clearly to an increase in uh, demand associated with people going back to school, going back to work, and uh, also seeking uh, a test uh, when uh, because the government would see it, they don't necessarily need one because they don't have uh, symptoms. So uh, essentially, the government say it's an increase in demand. Um, Matt Hancock and uh, uh, the Prime Minister have acknowledged the system, uh, as you say, is facing huge pressure uh, and have said essentially that it will and needs to be sorted out in the next uh, couple of weeks. And Anoush, I mean, schools are back, people are returning to offices. These are some of the things prompting the, um, the desire to have more tests. Shouldn't the government have seen this coming? Well, absolutely. I mean, it spent all of summer basically saying people should go back to offices, people should eat out. It's their sort of patriotic duty to start stimulating the economy again. And Boris Johnson was unequivocal about the most important thing being children going back to school. So really, if those were its priorities, then it should have found some way of balancing that risk with the increase in the number of cases of coronavirus, which, of course, we've always known would would be coming back around, particularly from, from our neighbours in Europe. So it was foreseeable. Um, and it just, I think, goes to show that uh, this government from the start really has been putting spin and rhetoric before actual substance and perhaps not levelling with the public about things that uh, it, it doesn't want to tell them and things that might be unpopular or disappointing. Well, what, what, what would those what would those be in this particular case? Because it, look, th- th- this isn't this isn't easy. And the government said, um, okay, we want you to get a test uh, so that you can get back to work. So if you've got symptoms or something, you don't have to sit at home and your whole family sit at home with you uh, w- w- without knowing whether or not you've you've got you've got the test. On the other hand, it is difficult to get an awful lot of these tests, you know, ro- rolled out. So what what do you think when you say it's not being straight with the public? What 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 is the thing that it should have said? 
Well, I think, for example, if it wanted schools to go back and to be able to manage the number of uh, people who would need to self-isolate and get tested with that with that big ma- mass return to normal life, then perhaps the idea of everyone going out to eat in restaurants wasn't the best thing to balance that risk, um, even though that was a popular policy that seemed to work well in terms of stimulating the economy. So, you know, that was a popular policy. People enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure the government enjoys the uh, success of the scheme. But then, of course, the result has been a lack of balance in the rise in risk. So really, if, if it had spent all summer saying we want to prioritise children going back to schools, and that means all of us having to make sacrifices, including businesses, then that probably would have been a little bit more straightforward, probably, you know, less popular. But that would have levelled with the public and perhaps um, kept cases under control. And I think Anoush is right that um, that the sort of substance of, of uh, the government's actions uh, has uh, helped create these circumstances. But there's also something really basic about just the, the communications, the messaging. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, uh, the government was emphasising that tests were free, that you should get a test, um, that you should, uh, even if you hadn't necessarily got, got symptoms, uh, but that you were um, worried about contact, you should get a test. And now that messaging has completely turned on its head. So there's something basic about sort of communications discipline as well, I think. Well, but they still want people to get a test. They just uh, rather coyly acknowledge that you may not be able to get it very, very quickly. I mean, just take us a bit into the mechanics of how a government can roll out a big program like this. This is a government, you know, suddenly deciding, okay, we need lots and lots and lots of tests. What, what are the obstacles to getting that done? So it is, it's really complicated uh, and uh, it is a big logistical exercise. That doesn't mean the government you know, can't do it or shouldn't be able to do it or we shouldn't um, uh, expect them to, to, to deliver these sorts of things. Um, uh, but it is uh, it's a sort of fearsome logistical operation from setting up the labs um, through to organising the distribution of tests uh, and uh, then the whole process by which they are taken through the, the system. Um, uh, NHS Test and Trace, the organisation, uh, organization that is set up to do this uh, is has vast amounts of money vast amounts of people the government really has um, thrown everything at it um, but in the end it's a it's, it's a big logistical um, coordination exercise there were, there are lots of uh, you know flow diagrams and charts and that involves in the end a, a lot of people um, uh, acting in sort of full synchronization with each other in order to get this uh, very very complicated process uh, through there is an argument that the government made its uh, job harder by creating these different pillars so some tests are uh, uh, managed through hospitals uh, and others are managed uh, in the community um, by uh, centralising with these enormous Nightingale laboratories um, uh, rather than using the existing existing public health uh, architecture and uh, boosting that um, but they've they've effectively created a, a, an enormous system from from scratch which is very impressive on one level but it's clearly fragile as we're seeing now. Yeah. Anoush, I mean, what about the role of Dido Harding? She's a Tory peer and she's been put in to run this and then also given the job of running the successor to Public Health England, the National Institute for Health Protection, uh, as it's called. I'm sure we'll all become familiar with that. Um, Do you think it works putting in a single person to try to deliver uh, an enormous operation like this? Does it help concentrate minds or um, is it a kind of evasion? I think it depends on who that individual is. So, you know, if you do have someone who commands confidence in the sector, someone who has that experience and and that and the credentials to run, you know, whatever 
whatever uh, initiative you're trying to run, then it follows that that should work well because people working within that sector will have the confidence in in that person to deliver. Dido Harding was was a controversial uh, appointment because she is seen as someone who is his who is close to this particular administration, and so it may be seen as an appointment of you know the, and, and an appointment in the style of of this this number ten in particular of appointing people who are close to them to run things rather than the people who are perhaps the best equipped to run things. So I think that, you know, the goodwill may have been lost in a point in an appointment like that, which obviously does have an effect on the sort of morale and the and the goodwill throughout the system. So I do think that perhaps that's that's an example of of where number 10 sometimes fails in trying to keep its sort of friends close and running things in such a centralized way. Another thing that could be a sticking point is bringing Public Health England into that NHS test and trace body to try and centralise the entire system at a time when everything's in flux. Um, you know, just just trying to reorganise an entire institution that's that's running something that's constantly being scaled up and tweaked and changed, depending on very fast changing circumstances. That's another controversial decision. So I don't think you know you can place the blame on Dido Harding as an individual in itself but i do think that 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 decision is is an example of a number 10 who who are you know apparently not that sympathetic or conciliatory towards people who may may disagree with the kind of appointments that they make and the way that they run things we'll have to see she's going to uh, have quite a lot to say over the coming days and weeks i think to to parliament jess you keep a very close eye for us on what's going on in the devolved nations tell us how the testing is turning out in wales scotland and northern ireland So we have seen some similar problems to the ones that are happening in England, particularly in Wales, less so in Northern Ireland and Scotland. But I guess it's also worth remembering that schools returned much earlier in August um, in Scotland and Wales. But there have been some problems that have been created as a result of the kind of UK wide backlog. Because it's quite interesting that even though health is very extensively devolved and we've seen the four governments take different decisions in a number of different ways, but uh, testing is actually one of the areas in which there's been very close cooperation. Um, So at the beginning of of the crisis on the uh, agreement of the devolved administrations, uh, the UK government and the Department of Health and Social Care has been responsible for rolling out community testing across the UK. So setting up those driving centres and establishing the kind of lighthouse labs. And I mean, it's certainly interesting that the devolved administrations seem to be a bit more vocal about that fact at the moment than they were perhaps initially. Um, But it does mean that what's happening in one part of the UK on testing Testing does have implications for the other parts. No, I, I absolutely see that on the interconnected point. But I, I just want to pick up this, this interesting point you mentioned, that, uh, that schools went back uh, quite a bit earlier in Scotland and a bit earlier in Wales. Wouldn't that have given them problems earlier? And yet it sounds as if, from your account, as if it's helped them manage things. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, there are some people that um, have suggested that the UK government should have learned more lessons from Scotland in this area. Um, Similarly, with uh, things like exam results, uh, quite often Scotland goes first, and that should have given perhaps the UK government a bit of forewarning um, on that point. Um, So perhaps there is a lesson here um, about different parts of the UK learning from each other a bit more um, in this coronavirus response. Well, maybe they learned. Unlike A-levels, it was all going to be fine. <laughs> and that's what they hit Alex. Right? I was just going to say very briefly, we, we, we did see a small uptick in Scotland uh, before the rest of um, the UK. So I think, uh, again, you can uh, you could have anticipated that uh, a little bit. So certainly it was about sort of two weeks ago the numbers started going up in Scotland, which one would assume was associated with the schools going back soon. 
And in the middle of all this, we get promises of a moonshot testing system. Is that going to happen? I'm going to go out on a limb and say no, uh, or at least not to the time and in the way that the government's uh, uh, proposed. It, it, it does feel um, pretty fantastical and quite a significant political distraction and, and, and quite possibly a kind of administrative distraction from getting the day-to-day testing uh, work. It, it, it feels like... And, and just tell us, tell us what was meant by the moonshot testing system. The moonshot testing was to test um, uh, 10 million, uh, to, to make 10 million tests available every day so that um, uh, pretty much everybody who needed one could each morning you know, spit in a cup and um, uh, uh, get their test results uh, very, very rapidly uh, and uh, know that they were then kind of good to go. Um, that requires a completely sort of different conception of uh, testing to that which is has been set up over the last uh, six months. So it's sort of creating a whole new system uh, based on a whole new uh, test. And while obviously it would be fantastic if uh, uh, that could um, be made uh, real, uh, it feels um, uh, to me like an example of a Prime Minister desperate to grasp some uh, optimistic uh, news uh, that actually ends up being counterproductive because uh, he should be focusing on the knitting. Because it really does get confusing what the, this, the strategy behind this testing is, what the government intends to do with it. I mean, I think we're absolutely right. And as Anoush was saying at the beginning, you know, of, um, well, the point of it seems to be to be able to get as many people back to work or school as possible and as few people having to isolate because they might have the disease. Um, as possible. But there are layers of these things. There's the moonshot, there's the uh, test that you'll uh, just go and get if you've got symptoms. I've just got a letter I'm holding in here from uh, the Department of Health and Social Care, also with Imperial College, Ipsos Mori and NHS saying, take part in the largest COVID testing research study in England. Tick here, we'll send you a test, send it back. And this is intended to show how many people currently have the virus. Obviously, testing is a good thing, but you've got to know what you want to do with it. I, I think that's right. It goes, it goes right back to what Chris Whitty said near the beginning of the outbreak, which is um, increasing testing capacity is all well and good, but you need a strategy for that. It's not sufficient on its own. That strategy needs to be informed by the uh, medical and scientific ev- evidence base, but also, as Anoush was saying earlier, by a sense of how you want to open up the uh, economy and, and, and people's uh, lives uh, and what trade-offs you're going to make. And Anoush, we've been talking about testing. What's happened to the tracing bit? It's gone very quiet. Yes. Good question. Um, Obviously, you can't really trace without the testing there. Um, So, you know, you can't have one without the other. Um, And this is another example, I think, of of the problem with announcing. So, you know, the test and trace system was supposed to be world beating. There was the original testing target announced by Matt Hancock, which was met, but only through chicanery. and, And there was a sort of a, a, a chastisement from the UK Statistics Authority there. Um, you know, so they did get sort of um, uh, chastised for how they presented those, those testing figures, although they, they did increase capacity. He did meet, he did, he did, he did meet them, though, in, in the end. Didn't he? But, I mean, the question is... Um... Yeah, yes, you know, on the day that it was supposed to be met, it, it, it turned out that it was tests that were being sent out to households. For but we're talking about tracing, not, test, not, 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 not testing, which I think that row was about. Yes. The actual tracing yes. and the app. Yes, yes. And the app is another, I'm saying the app is another example of Mm. that pattern. So something that was promised that was not delivered, um, 
like you were saying with moon sh- with the operation moonshot as well that seems like something that will will be an overpromise and um mm. something that will be underdelivered and i think the big problem with all of this not only does it make it confusing about when you're supposed to seek a test you know the the idea of the test and trace system is that it's trying to work out how many cases there are in the community and give you instructions of what to do if you've been in the vicinity of someone who tests positive. You can't do that at the same time as saying, well, actually, tests need to, there needs to be a hierarchy for tests because, you know, we're not able to process as many as we need to with everyone going back to school as, happening, as is yeah. happening now. And then moonshot suggesting that yeah. everyone who needs to get a test can get tested. That's very confusing. And I think when all of these things start failing and missing their targets, then you lose that public trust. And we've just seen, you know, some latest polling that shows the biggest slump in approval ratings for the government's career coronavirus response. When you start losing that public trust, you lose the, you know, the public goodwill, the cooperation that you need to be able to fight a virus like this. Let's come on to our second subject, the internal market bill. The infernal market bill, as someone was calling it not very long ago, if coronavirus testing or a lack of it is putting the government under pressure across the country, well, back in Parliament, it's this bill which is giving ministers really something to worry about. The government says this controversial piece of legislation will ensure that there are no new barriers for businesses trading across the UK, including Northern Ireland. But the bill has left the devolved nations complaining of a Westminster power grab. And the EU has been up in arms, that's putting it mildly, at the government's apparent acceptance that this bill unpicks the withdrawal agreement. Jess, give us an update. As the bill passed second reading on Monday with a majority of 77. So I think perhaps less of a rebellion than some people were expected. There were a couple of Tory MPs that voted against second reading and a handful of abstentions. But generally, the government managed to kind of keep people on side. Um, The bill's had its first and second day in committee this week, and that's focusing on some of the um, slightly more practical aspects of the bill. So, for example, this new independent body uh, that the government's proposing to establish to monitor the functioning of the UK internal market and also these new financial powers um, that the UK government is taking to spend money in the devolved administrations. Um, And so we've seen um, the SNP be very well represented in the chamber and some some debate um, on those issues. But really, we're expecting the really interesting parts of the bill to be discussed next week um, on Monday when they'll discuss the provisions on the Northern Ireland Protocol um, and these potential provisions that could allow UK ministers to break the law. And then on Tuesday, um, we'll be discussing a lot of the uh, market access provisions, which are the bits that Scottish and government, Scottish and Welsh governments are particularly opposed to. Um, so I think next week is, is really when it's going to get interesting. Anoush, how much do the Lords matter in this? I think they matter hugely. I think we've just heard from Michael Howard, who was saying that he didn't expect the bill to pass in the Lords. Um, and that's that's very important because, in fact, Michael Howard is a very interesting figure because he is someone who has sort of been, um, you know, a Brexiteer, loyal, a conservative, former leader. Um, and he's been absolutely outraged by um, the idea the idea of the bill, whether that amendment is included or not you know, giving the provision for breaking international law and undermining the, the deal struck by the by the government. So I think that that's very important because if they can't get the House of Lords buy-in, then what does that what does that mean? Both for the both for the amendment that, that could be the compromise that staves off the Commons rebellion, but also for the bill itself and for the internal politics of the Conservative Party. We've had a summer of, of rancor. 
across the ideology, you know, across the backbenches, across Tory MPs of different uh, views on Brexit and other issues. Um, and so if figures like Howard in the Lords are, are, are pioneering a rebellion to this bill, then that, that, that means a great deal for number 10 and, and the uh, bill itself. What I think is uh, really interesting is reports this morning um, that the bill might not make it to the Lords till after the European Council, so after the Prime Minister's deadline for a deal. Um, And I guess there's two reasons why uh, they could be taking this approach. One is that they're worried that the Lords will um, either seriously amend the bill or defeat it, and that will remove their leverage. Uh, The other interpretation is that um, the UK government still wants to be able to offer to compromise with the EU and to take out these provisions while the bill is still amendable. Um, but certainly, I think I think that might change the context in which the bill actually ends up in the Lords. Um, nonetheless, there are still a huge number of constitutional issues um, that the Lords, who certainly see themselves as the safeguards of the Constitution, will also be interested in. That's really, really interesting. And because um, it touches on one of the fascinating questions about this, is why is the government done this? Why, why has it been so provocative? Did it really not realise the implications of the, of the um, withdrawal bill it, it, it signed? Or is it trying, you know, to, to manoeuvre the EU talks? Um, it, it's fascinating. Alex, we had another, uh, we had a ministerial resignation, Lord Keane. Is this a big one? It's not one of those uh, sort of government shaking resignations, uh, some of which we've seen over uh, recent uh, years. And uh, I think the government will survive Lord Keane's resignation politically, you know, very uh, comfortably. It is significant uh, in that it uh, follows the resignation of Jonathan Jones, the head civil service lawyer, last week. Um, the advocate general, which was Lord Keane's uh, job, is a sort of surprisingly uh, significant figure in government. He's one of the law officers responsible for interpreting and advising on Scottish law. It has a sort of internal um, constitutional status that that, that outranks his um, formal ministerial one. I'm going to remember that surprisingly significant role. (laughs) (laughs) Not something wrong with his political obituary. Go on. Well, apologies to Lord Keane. The other point of significance is it it raises pressure on the Lord Chancellor, Lord Buckland in particular, um, to just continue to justify his position remaining in the government when uh, it's it's clear that this legislation breaches um, international uh, law And I think going back to what you were just saying on the Lords, all of which I entirely agree with, Lord Keane will be a powerful advocate against uh, controversial clauses in this uh, in this bill from the backbenches. And so it, it raises the pressure there as well. Because he did spend a day or so trying to defend the legislation, didn't he? He argued that Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, who, who's the one who said the, these famous words about, about the, the, the government, um, that the legislation would break international law. He said, well, he's essentially answered the wrong question. Um, but yes. then in his, um, in, in his yeah. uh, and he told the House of Lords that, that the bill doesn't of itself constitute a breach of international law. But then he got to his resignation letter and he said, over the past week, I found it increasingly difficult to reconcile what I consider to be my obligations as a law officer with your policy intentions with respect to the internal markets bill. Yes, and then wish the government well uh, and chastise them for picking a battle at a particularly difficult time. It was a classic uh, of its uh, type. What was so striking was he was almost treating the government as his client, seeking a way to find a legal justification for what they were doing and uh, grappling with this over the last few days and then just finally deciding, actually, no, my client is so pig-headed on this, I, I cannot find any justification. That was my reason. Yes, as he said in his letter, sacking his client, if you like, I have endeavoured to identify a respectable argument for the provisions at clauses 42 to 45 of the bill, but it is now clear that this will not meet your policy intentions. Um, Anoush, uh, Boris Johnson was touring the tea rooms in Parliament this, this week. Is there anyone there, by the way? 
<laughs> yes. Oh, yes, they are there. Yeah. You can hear because the chuntering at PMQs has got louder over over the uh, over the weeks. So they are there. Yeah. Yeah. So not absolutely not not a pointless circuit of the building. Is that, is that, a, is that a sign that um, he knows he needs to woo his MPs? And, and this is not a government that spent a lot of time on its backbenchers. Yes, absolutely. I think that's 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 um, a, a correct summary of the situation. Boris Johnson was never a politician who was um, said to have roved the tea rooms even before his his time as uh, as prime minister. And and so you can tell because because number ten has has not always been forthcoming. In reaching a handout to backbenchers who may be unhappy or ministers who may have lost out during reshuffles, for example, all the usual kind of tender loving care that, that successful number 10 operations have to give to their MPs, you know, that doesn't seem to be the focus or the skill of, of this operation. So, so you know that if Boris Johnson's trying to have these conversations, trying to reach some kind of compromise, trying to put off a rebellion, you know that they're spooked um, and you know that perhaps. By picking this fight at such a, um, a, a crucial and, and difficult time, that they may have bitten off more than they can chew, and even for this operation that sees itself as sort of maverick and, and doesn't play by the usual rules, having more than the usual suspects speak out against what they're trying to do, I think they they know that that's that perhaps that's gone one step too far, and they do want to put off an embarrassing rebellion. Um, but whether whether or not you know, they built that groundwork before this particular row, you know that that a lot will depend on that. Yeah, they're kind of exactly. kind of doing it backwards in some ways. I mean, some people have said, look, look, they actually they had half a point against the EU, but they've only brought that out after making this big show. So, predictions from all of you, where, where does this go next? Jess, I'm going to start with Jess. Oh, that's a very good question. So, I think it will pass uh, the Commons unamended. I think that if we are waiting until after the European Council, there's a chance that the government itself might try and amend the bill. If it reaches agreement on on these issues that it argues need to be resolved, um, that these powers are meant to act as a backstop for. Alternatively, I do think um, I don't think it will get through the Lords unscathed. Um, so either way, I would be surprised if these provisions, as they stand, make it into law. Really interesting, Alex. I think uh, just has put a finger on it there. Um, I mean, if if things don't significantly change on the EU level, there is absolutely no way this bill gets through the House of uh, Lords um, uh, unamended. I, I, I just can't see it. But I think having been pretty uh, negative uh, in my own mind about the consequences of a deal over the last few weeks, um, uh, all, the, all the more so after the um, fun and fireworks uh, last week on this bill, Jess's point about the scheduling of the Lords stages after the October European Council, I think, is a really interesting bit of revealed preference from the government, um, which that just makes me think that an EU deal and all of this kind of fading away uh, might be on the cards. Talk about government communication strategy, we have to deduce its motives from all these kinds of things. Anoush, uh, briefly, when it? I don't want to be dull, but I do think that that's probably the, the, the best, most likely prediction at this stage. But we don't know, we don't know in what form the government's compromise will take, and perhaps that won't be enough to to quell a rebellion. So I wouldn't rule out a rebellion just yet. Okay, well, let's stay on the subject of stumbling blocks with negotiations with the EU, but turn to a completely different one, the question of state aid. That's the regulation of domestic subsidies that the government might give companies. The EU wants the UK to continue to respect EU state aid rules, but the UK doesn't want to be constrained anymore by those rules. So where is this going to end up? 
Well, the IFG has put out a new paper saying the government should adopt its own state aid or subsidy control regime, regardless of whether it strikes a deal with the EU or not. And Tom Pope, an author of the report, is joining us now. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. So tell us, why should the UK bring in its own state aid system? Because a strong domestic restriction on subsidies is in the UK's own domestic interest. I think it's really interesting how uh, this subject has mainly been framed, um, understandably, in the through the prism of EU-UK negotiations and about what the UK needs to commit to to satisfy the EU. But the argument that we make in our paper is that actually, just from a purely domestic perspective, there's a lot for the UK to gain. Having those restrictions on subsidies, not a total prohibition, but a restriction on some subsidies, can help those uh, the government to target it, its policy priorities with the right subsidies. So I think an important point here is that you know not all subsidies are harmful, but some are, and some are just a waste of money. And we want a regime that's going to weed out those bad subsidies and ensure that we're getting good value for public money. But there's also another aspect here that I think is somewhat related to um, what you've been talking about already, and that's the UK's constitutional position. We've sort of got this quasi-federal structure where the devolved administrations have quite a lot of flexibility about what they spend money on. And if you don't have a strong legal regime to restrict subsidies, there's a real risk of subsidy races between the different parts of the UK. So, for example, Scotland offering a subsidy to a business to locate north of the border. You see these problems quite a lot in other federal countries. The US is kind of the the best example where, where you see it playing out almost unhindered, if you like, for really quite damaging consequences. But you see it in other countries too. And we've looked at Canada in our paper and shown that there are also problems there. All right. So take us into the history a bit, because one of the oddities of this, isn't it, that, that when, the, um, when the UK was within the EU, it was arguing all the time that countries and the EU should be very, very tough on state aid and not allow unfair competition, big dollops of money coming from government to national champions or whatever. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the the history and the data, the UK has not been a big subsidizer within the EU. Uh, we spend something like ten billion pounds a year on uh, permitted state aid, and that that's way less than a country like Germany, which spends one and a half percent of GDP compared to less than half a percent of GDP in the UK. And you know, th- this goes back, I suppose, to a UK economic model that has tended to believe in as a simplification, believe in uh, markets, not wanted to support failing businesses and seen a dynamic dynamic economy as being in the UK's best interest. And so, as you say, the UK has been a champion of state aid rules within the EU. And of course, partly that is because they want to protect themselves from the negative effects of um, subsidies from other EU countries as well. Right. But so you're not saying um, don't do state aid. You're saying have a set of rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have a sense of the level at which it, it you know, is actually good for a country and the level at which it becomes harmful? You know, can we say that Britain, having done much less of this than Germany, is um, has, has fared better, has encouraged a more competitive economy? Or- yeah, I, I think that, that's, a, that's the right question to ask. And I think the answer is that it's not about the level, it's about the type. There are really good subsidies that um, could be quite expensive. Um, both Germany and the UK spend most of their state aid on supporting environmental um, pre- protection. That's the main policy aim that it's used for. And, you know, w- well-designed subsidies to support that aim, to help us get to net zero um, as soon as possible, um, are going to be 
uh, in the UK's interest. And you don't want a regime that's going to restrict those policies. And that's where I think uh, the debate on state aid has sometimes got a bit lost because it treats state aid rules as a complete prohibition on what governments can, uh, on, on subsidies that governments can offer. But that's not the case. The, the way that the EU rules work is to constrain what subsidies can be offered, and in particular, to make sure that the subsidies that are offered are ones that are making a genuine difference, or what economists would call correcting market failures, um, and that they're doing that in a good value-for-money way and contributing towards policy priorities. And I think a, a positive spin on this for the UK is that what we say in the paper is that you should, they shouldn't just want to follow the EU rules to the letter. And actually, there's a, a better regime out there that the UK could design that would work more effectively than state aid for, for the UK and would allow us to still invest in those policy priorities. So we wouldn't need to have a regime that would prevent us doing anything to support our tech sector or to prevent us getting to net zero. So you're saying, I mean, we should have a set of rules, but it doesn't have to be the EU set of rules. There actually could be a better set. That's right. And the EU rules set out, you know, there are many good features of the EU regime. And I think there are some elements of that that the UK would do well to copy. So, for example, I think a regime that operates by having a strong independent regulator is going to be more effective than one that relies on potentially politically messy negotiation or agreement through the courts. But there are ways in which the EU regime is uh, overly restrictive or in which it in particular imposes administrative burdens on, for example, small businesses. So the EU regime has a very low de minimis threshold. And what that means is that even quite a small subsidy to a business that you know isn't really going to do very much harm can nonetheless be caught in these state aid rules. And that means that businesses and public authorities need to do quite a lot of work, employ lawyers to to make sure that they're complying with the rules. The UK could take a different approach and have a higher de minimis threshold, only worry about those big subsidies that really are going to risk harming competition in the UK. And we can also tweak or change more fundamentally the exemptions that we have if there are particular ways in which the UK wants to support the priority of levelling up, for example. We could do that um, by tweaking the exemptions to the system, making explicit allowance for policies that are effective at reducing productivity gaps between mm. um, different regions of the UK, for example. Mm. Mm. Hasn't coronavirus blow, blown all this out of the water, though? I mean, we were talking about nice rules, so, you know, what, what, what would the government do in some sort of billions of pounds here, here and there? And here's hundreds of billions of pounds being poured into the economy. Uh, no country really trying to set rules on what other countries do. They're just trying to uh, keep it afloat in their own particular way. Um, and the Chancellor having, you know, essentially complete freedom to devise what he wants, subject, of course, to looming problems with national finances. So does, is this something a bit academic, given the, the emergencies that all countries are, are facing? So I, I think the coronavirus uh, case study is a really interesting one in terms of state aid. So the EU very quickly set out rules that gave countries a lot more latitude to um, to support businesses through the pandemic. So as you say, there have been lots of um, schemes that have been approved actually under state aid in order to um, allow governments to support the economy. Not, not all of government support counts as state aid. So the, 
the job retention scheme, for example, that's not a selective subsidy only for part of the economy. So that's um, that's not covered. But, you know, a lot of the... But if you started saying, oh, we're just going to support uh, um, people in cafes, working in cafes, or, or we're just going to support um, steel workers, for example... Then that would exactly, and that is the case that we, you know, we've we've had special business rates exemptions just for some sectors of the economy, and under normal state aid rules, that wouldn't have been allowed. I think it's interesting, particularly talking to um, people in the EU in favour of these rules. They would say that the coronavirus crisis has shown why the rules are so necessary, because if you look at the aid that's been approved under the special coronavirus exemptions, more than half of it has been spent by Germany, and so what what that's going to do is allow the sort of German businesses to be better shielded from the crisis and then to emerge from it um, in a stronger competitive place. And what advocates of state aid rules would say is, well, actually, this shows exactly why we need these rules to prevent the bigger, stronger parts of, of the EU from souping up their, uh, their businesses and giving them an unfair competitive advantage. So let me, let me ask you, um, whether this is really going to be the hill on which hopes of a Brexit deal die, because that's how it looks at the moment. Um, and the EU is saying this more than fish, more than all kinds of things. This uh, really, really matters. And you cannot possibly imagine, you in the UK, that we're going to do a trade agreement with um, a country that won't even tell us what its uh, state aid rules are going to be. But is there the room for compromise there? Of, um, uh, of uh, If the UK came out with a set of rules, could, could there be a, a compromise there? So I think a compromise um, is possible. It's not easy. I mean, what we do say in the paper is that the EU starting position, which was that the UK should continue to follow EU rules wholesale, was was not an acceptable position. It was understandable why the UK um, wasn't willing to accept that. Will it be the hill that 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 that, um, that the government dies on in terms of a deal? Um, I think, as we said out in the paper, there, there are good enough domestic reasons for having a regime that it doesn't need to be. And in terms of what kind of compromise with the EU would be needed, I think if the UK were willing to um, adopt a, a, a strong domestic regime, not one that completely copies state aid, but which shares some of its features, then really the, the main stumbling block remaining would be to have some sort of dispute resolution um, mechanism effectively for the EU and the UK to to have a way to to resolve disagreements on big subsidies either from the UK or the EU side that might affect the other market and this is where I think again um, I, I would play out the benefits to the UK of that kind of symmetric agreement as we've already set out as we've already said the UK um, subsidizes a lot less than um, than the EU you, you hear talk um, certainly over the last couple of years about the EU wanting to support more of its domestic champions. If you had that sort of symmetric agreement that allowed the UK or the EU the ability to um, to dispute particular subsidies from the other side, well, you could see that kind of agreement actually being much more beneficial to the UK than the EU. Well, we'll have to see. That is uh, quite a long way from the UK position at the moment, um, uh, the UK position as we understand it. But there may be, of course, all kinds of thinking underneath. Tom Pope, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Jess Sargent, and our guest Anoush Chakalian. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much indeed to Tom Pope as well, and thank you all at home for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of our discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. On Monday, we're going to be running a day of special fringe events as part of the Labour Party's 
online conference. So do tune in to a range of discussions with speakers, including David Lammy, Lisa Nandy, and Annalise Dodds. The events are going to be live. Check out our website to register or listen back afterwards at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And you can find all of our work, including the new state aid report, at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. See you next week when we aim to deliver another world-beating episode of the podcast. Thank <laughs> you.